you know, I was going around beating, beating a pot and pan about this and visiting regulators. And they were like, who the heck is this girl? What is she talking about? You know, then the price went up and the, the pyramid schemes came in. And all of a sudden, instead of it going to the Financial Conduct Authority or the Capital Markets Authority, the central bank, it went to the cybercrime unit. So all of a sudden, several governments across the continent, Kenya included, suddenly had digital currency at the cybercrime unit and were freaking out about it. And they clamped down hard and said, we ban it. So before anything was even known, they kind of banned it. And they named like OneCoin and they named BitClub and things like this on those lists. So that was annoying. At the same time in South Africa, where you have a heavy, kind of very independent thinking financial culture, you had this go straight to the South African Reserve Bank instead of the Financial Crimes Unit. And they put out a very thoughtful, in-depth piece in March 2014, and then again in 2015. So that was like the first step in the other direction of like, we're going to consider this something legitimate, and we're going to look at it in a measured approach. And today, it's still one of the clearest pieces of like legislation. And then everywhere else in the continent, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know whether to go the Kenyan route or the South African route. Until Uganda really made progress a year ago. And then finally, Nigeria this year came out with a cryptocurrency regulation. And that's what the title is, not digital or not anything else. And that went under the Securities and Exchange Commission, which was interesting. It was like a four or five year pause where nobody made any regulation. And of course, you heard things in the news like, you know, Tunisia, everybody using Bitcoin or Egypt, people love crypto. And there was a lot of media you know, suddenly Liberia is using it, but usually it would be like one college student (laughs) did a thesis project and then the media picked up on it. So there was really not a lot of substance to any of that talk about legislation for years and years and years. And I'd say, you know, Mauritius now has a bit, South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, and everywhere else, it's still not clear. They haven't really published. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Pretty much everyone involved in crypto and blockchain technology can cite their aha moment, that point at which the light bulb goes off and you think, oh, wow, I see why this is valuable. For me, it came in 2013, when an early entrepreneur in this space explained to me how Bitcoin solved the trusted third-party problem and suggested it could be valuable in places with underdeveloped financial systems. He talked of how it could solve for the loss of confidence in local currencies and the crises that breeds, how it could boost financial inclusion and lower the cost of payments for billions of people. As loyal listeners and readers will know, I'd lived in Argentina, a poster child for financial dysfunction. Argentina had had multiple crises over the past century, with destructive bouts of both hyperinflation and deflation, both of which ultimately stem from the same problem of institutional failure. The problem, in essence, was a lack of trust in the management and intermediation of the country's money and payment system. 
I could immediately imagine how a digital form of value that did not require the participation of either governments or banks could potentially overcome that deep institutional problem. But the reality is that since then, cryptocurrencies have mostly not lived up to that promise. Bitcoin and its alternatives did not become the rails of remittance flows that many of us expected. Beyond some vocal enthusiasts in a few developing countries, it didn't really change existing monetary models with anything near mass adoption. Even as Venezuela was melting down and, yes, driving more than a few desperate folks to Bitcoin, the vast majority of Venezuelans flocked to good old US dollars. Same went for Turks, Lebanese and Zimbabweans facing similar crises at home. Instead, cryptocurrencies were mostly favoured as speculative investment vehicles and largely in the developed world. In 2020, however, things are looking a little different. In the first six months of the COVID crisis, dollar shortages in sub-Saharan Africa coincided with big volume increases in peer-to-peer crypto exchanges, Paxful and local bitcoins. Those numbers have since subsided as oil prices have stabilized, mitigating the pressure on Nigeria's economy, and as the US Federal Reserve's massive expansion in money supply has eased the global dollar shortages. However, reports of rising crypto usage in emerging markets continue to emerge. Political crises in Thailand and Lebanon, for example, have driven people to seek out censorship-resistant money that authorities can't control. Meanwhile, a vitally important trend is pointing to an alternative way in which this technology is gaining ground in these places, and that's in the use of stablecoins. There's evidence that individuals and businesses are increasingly using these dollar-pegged crypto tokens to move money around and in and out of their domestic economies. Some believe this idea of stable, dollar-denominated value is what we needed for crypto to fulfill its emerging market promise. Bitcoin's volatility was too difficult to stomach and manage for people engaged in the kind of small-scale transactions that dominate these markets. Still, there's a long way to go before this technology makes a transformative dent in the traditional forms of payment and finance in the developing world. To discuss where we've come from and where we are going, we are lucky to be joined today by two veterans in this industry. Elizabeth Rossiello is the founder and CEO of AZA, which has for seven years been developing digital payment solutions in African markets. And Sebastian Serrano is the founder and CEO of Ripio, which has been doing similar work in Latin America for more or less the same amount of time. Before we meet Elizabeth and Sebastian, let's welcome my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So what was your aha moment? You, you, know, you heard me talk about how Argentina and my understanding and experience of that was important for a moment when I suddenly went, wow, I get it. What was it for you? You know, I'm one of those weirdos, I guess, who really came into this buying into the blockchain, not Bitcoin, and, and for the technology around its use for data and data security and, and data transfer. So my aha moment around the money aspect of this was really when I went to this conference at Skywalker Ranch, and they were talking about municipal bonds that were crypto bonds, basically, and how you could actually use the governance mechanism to enable kind of what we were talking about with Glenn, you know, on our show, you could actually enable these voting mechanisms. So people could actually buy into municipal bonds and then use tokens to vote on what those bonds should be spent on. And so that's when I really cued into the, how the governance underlying cryptocurrency was so powerful and how it was going to unlock a tremendous amount, not just a value, but opportunity, particularly for ordinary citizens to engage in decision-making. 
you're a Bond nerd, basically, and it, it, appe- it appealed to the. I, I, mean, I spent much of my life as a journalist covering fixed income <laughs> markets, and I know all about you know convex. What's called convexity and convexity. Uh, I have outed myself as a former tax lawyer, so yes, the nerd is strong <laughs> in this one for sure. All right, as I said, we looked at this journey, you know, seven years uh, or so since I got into it, and, and and certainly since our two guests, who we are soon to greet, have been in it. There was a little bit of disappointment there, for me at least. I really thought emerging markets were going to be the thing. And now I, I still believe it is, by the way. It always is. What's that line about Brazil? Like, it is the country of the future and always will be. I mean, that, that sometimes <laughs> you, you get these concerns. Oh, yeah. What do you think has been the major barrier to adoption? And are we actually at the cusp of getting through those challenges now? Certainly, I think to your earlier points in your monologue, it depends on what adoption you're talking about. Because certainly as an investment vehicle, there's no shortage of adoption in Western countries. And I do think that some of that has bled over, if you will, into into other places as well. And I certainly think in terms of innovation and the technology, we've seen some of the most interesting experiments happen in frontier economies. I don't think there's any question about that. But you know, it's a question of, of the mainstream user. And so why hasn't there been the mainstream user pickup? And I think a lot of that really, and we're going to hear from guests who are much more experts in this than I, but I do think that a lot of that is about traditional digital divide kinds of issues. You know, were the mechanisms in the early days able to be accessed by by people in economies that didn't necessarily have the same kinds of infrastructure, you know, that you had in the United States, as an example. And a lot of these questions, there's an interplay here. There's an interplay in terms of open public digital infrastructure and the ability of people to access these kinds of things that goes beyond simple education. Yeah, that infrastructure part is critical. When we use those words, I think we think of technology, but it's regulation, it's the structure, it's the, it's the entire model around which this stuff can work. And watching all the different players in this space figure out how to work with all of those pieces and come up with a model that really does make this stuff accessible and achieve these big goals around things like financial inclusion that, that many of us have been excited about for some time. It's been fascinating to watch that process. And I do think that bit by bit, you see it starting to take shape. And I think this is you know, one of the reasons why we have this podcast. I mean, it really is one of the most interesting aspects of where we're going. So we're absolutely lucky to be joined today by Elizabeth Rossiello and Sebastian Serrano. So Elizabeth is the founder and CEO of AZA, which for seven years has been developing digital payment solutions in African markets. Um, Elizabeth, I would love to turn to you Talk to us about your journey. You know, what was the opportunity that you saw when you were sitting in San Francisco and you had this big light bulb moment? What's that looked like over the past seven years? Thanks, Sheila. And thanks for having me, guys. The first thing is that I, I didn't live in San Francisco. I lived in Kenya. You know, my life was really different than a lot of other fintech founders up north, as we said, above the equator. I was there in 2009 in Kenya when M-Pesa first kind of got going. And for those of you who don't know, M-Pesa was the Vodafone subsidiary product in Kenya that was the first truly transformative mobile money around the world. And it reached penetration rates, some say of over 90% in the country and still is one of the leaders in the continent. So when this was happening, we were seeing real-time settlement values up to $600, $700 all over the country. And it was fully used by everybody. So penetration was huge. So then all these fintechs started coming into the country or started evolving out of this thing. Well, if we have real-time settlement and everybody's using this ecosystem, what can we build on top of it? And it really gave me the idea, I was working in microfinance at the time, of, well, how can we take this beautiful real-time settlement 
across the continent. And there was a real struggle because of the 55 currencies on the continent to send payments outside of one country and into another. That was one problem. There wasn't anybody making the market in those currencies. The second thing was if you went up above the mobile money level into corporate payments, there were no banks that were interested in doing that below you know, $5 million. And fees were 7 12 15%. And then we started learning about remittances and the transfer of flows into and out of the African continent. And I learned that there were actually two to three times the cost of where uh, Sebastian will tell you a little bit about South America and in Southeast Asian were. So I'm thinking, why is there such a distortion on the African continent? Nobody's making currency pairs for all of their neighboring countries. Nobody's doing corporate payments up to a million dollars. And why are the fees so high? And we started learning about the monopoly of the two correspondent banks, Standard Charter and Deutsche Bank, that had really controlled the continent and its connection to the rest of the planet for decades and decades. And how do you get around two huge incumbents? Well, you basically have to say you're not even driving on the road, you're going to go through space. And that's kind of where I got into digital currency and specifically Bitcoin by saying, well, I can't compete through the banks. I don't have access to mobile money that goes across the continent. And that's really where I learned that if I use Bitcoin, I could actually make a market from Kenyan shilling into euro or from Kenyan shilling into Canadian dollar. And there were people around the world that were willing to trade with me. And it was instant and it was fast and it was open source. And that's kind of how it got started, building the first idea. And now seven years later, we use hybrid. We use you know uh, digital currency for really only 7% of the transactions now. But we've been able to build out and fund and use this, this technology to create this hybrid company. And we would never have ever gotten a shot because we weren't an incumbent, because we weren't a state monopoly, we weren't a large telco. Any kind of open source technology is really out there for entrepreneurs around the world, giving them access where they wouldn't have had it before. So for me, it's about access. It's about opportunity. It's about welcoming in new ideas. And it's really about, you know, if you can dream it, you can build it. I love hearing about your journey, Elizabeth. And along the way, you've really engaged with so many different aspects of money. And this is something we talk a lot about on this show. We've talked a bit about, you know, de-risking and how the correspondent banks and the monopoly that you've talked about really did affect the entire world in terms of the global economy and how money was able to move. I'm curious, you know, you initially started off as a company called BitPesa. And so you were really Bitcoin-based and Bitcoin-backed. And I'm curious about that decision and then how things have evolved over time. Yeah. So when we first started, it was like October 2013. I met Barry Silbert, believe it or not, through LinkedIn. He hadn't started Digital Currency Group. That's where I eventually met Sebastian and, and some other cool founders around the world, like Tony from Corbett, and at the time, Sunny, who was doing Unocoin, and some other kind of founders who were really thinking about how to do this problem in emerging markets. We kind of connected through that network. And, you know, we were really excited. Everybody build out the network in their own country, and then we'll connect to each other. That was kind of like the plan. And I said, great. Okay, I'll take East Africa. I'm pretty sure nobody else is doing that. <laughs> uh, let me know when the UK and Europe have, you know, instant payments in and out. And I waited and I waited. And those kind of companies got $50 million in funding, $75 million in funding. Sebastian, Sunny, and I were like, wait, it's closed a half a million round, you know? So like, we're thinking, where is that instant real-time payment? I have it in Kenya already, and it just wasn't in the UK. And when you traded in and out of Bitcoin in the UK, you were paying spreads of like 3 to 5%, which was almost as bad as going through the bank. It was faster. It was instant. It was open. We could use it. 
but the liquidity wasn't there. There wasn't enough infrastructure. And that kind of was the case for two years. So finally, out of frustration, my co-founder, Charlene, was like, well, I'm going to just go to the UK. So she moved from Kenya to the UK and she got a license from the FCA. We're the first company trading a digital currency that got that license. It was a payment license. We established a subsidiary. We opened up accounts and we started trading between each other. So I just called her instead of a, you know, waiting for one of these big Silicon Valley companies mm-hmm. to kind of come over to the UK and build out the ramp. So then Charlene led the subsidiary in the UK and I led the subsidiary in Kenya. And now we had a sterling Kenyan shilling pair. And you know what? We didn't really need Bitcoin for that. And so it's a shame we were, we were waiting for that to build out, but it never really happened. So where we were able to build out our own infrastructure, and I eventually moved to Nigeria and then on to Senegal. We bought a company in Europe and Spain. We now have operations on, th- on three continents. You know, as we have 50 plus bank accounts on and off ramps into mobile and credit, et cetera, where we can, we trade with ourselves because being a market maker mm-hmm. is the best. But where we still need to work with partners, whether it's Mexico or Korea or Japan or Indonesia, and sometimes even South Africa, it still makes sense to use Bitcoin. One is when there's no liquidity that we can provide. Number two, when we want to try out a new market. Number three, sometimes the regulation for payments is worse than cryptocurrency or digital currency. And we just saw that with Nigeria, where they issued a cryptocurrency regulation, and it's now crystal clear how to do that. But some of our clients want to move into using Bitcoin to pay us as opposed to using you know, US dollar because it's actually more clear. So those are the kind of reasons that we still use it for a middle currency. Now, in addition to that, we sell Bitcoin as a currency. And I think it's a great currency. As you said before, it's a currency for investment. It's a currency for access. It does a lot of beautiful things and our clients want it. So we just consider it within the basket of currencies that we sell along with everything else. The journey that you guys have been on, I think, is just so instructive as to how we can understand where the real friction is in this system. It'd be interesting to, to talk a little later, perhaps, about whether or not we do evolve to a more all-encompassing system that, in fact, enables this onboarding without the you know, jury-rigged solutions that you had to come up with there, Elizabeth. But I want to bring in our next guest, Sebastian Serrano, who is the founder and CEO of Ripio. Been working for more or less the same time. He was just mentioned by Elizabeth in this space. Sebastian, welcome. Thank you for having me. Hi, hi Michael. Hi, Sheila. You saw it. Always good. Yeah, it's always good. In fact, you and I met, you know, I think right at the beginning and you were called Bitpagos. 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 So I'm interested to hear your journey since then, because I think, you know, at the time I was struck by what you were trying to do in Argentina, what you were doing in Argentina, as, as, as I've mentioned, this is a place that I had some familiarity with. And at the time we were looking in the US market where people were trying to figure out how to onboard merchants in the US through Bitcoin. And the big thing there was to quickly be able to convert merchants' Bitcoin into dollars. And you'd figured out the opposite solution for people in Argentina, merchants as well, who were keen to get out of pesos. Yes, to get into Bitcoin. To get into Bitcoin. So tourists were coming with their credit cards and they were immediately getting transferred into Bitcoin, which I thought was fascinating. But you've obviously evolved a long time since then. So start, if you don't mind, talking about what was the problem you were trying to solve at that point and what are some of the lessons that you've learned since then? A little bit of history. So for anyone that doesn't know, like Argentina is a country that has a big crisis almost every 10 years in economic terms. And right now it's having another one. I've seen this is going to be my fourth time. Like it's shorter than 10 years. 
And in 2012, uh, I was running um, a software development company and we having a ton of a struggle into charging clients. And that is when I, I, I saw Bitcoin and seeing like through history, like the value of Peso disappear. And I also am a software developer. Uh, I code as Science 8. Uh, so, so I'm very deep into technology and, and I love it. And I saw, whoa, this is the, the money of the future. This is uh, the, the missing protocol of the internet. Uh, and this is money becoming software. So it was like, the, I, I had to work on this. And the first product that, that we imagine is like, well, it's, it's very difficult to charge clients if you have like uh, clients that are uh, from abroad. So let's think on, on a solution that we can use through, through Bitcoin to get a better exchange rate to make more money through charging through crypto. The first product was that was like helping initially we started with hotels and helping us hotels to charge clients. But immediately we noticed that then these hotels wanted to sell the Bitcoin and then there was no market. So almost like a year after we launched Ripio, which is the wallet and realized that we had to build the entire infrastructure. Like that, that the moment in time was to build the infrastructure for access. I think like Elizabeth mentioned this, this word a, a few times. And I think that that is our mission. And like, if we had to summarize what we do is that word is helping people to get access into cryptocurrencies. We have always been into Bitcoin for savings to use it as a way to access to financial services, which half of the population that, that doesn't have. And it has been a, a, our work since then. I'm currently in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Major countries are Argentina and Brazil. And you mentioned like the adoption has, hasn't exploded in in emerging market, but, but I think it's starting to happening. And I think like uh, something that happened with cryptocurrencies is that I think like uh, developed countries, they have a, a, a very good financial infrastructure and that the population has like better understanding of like finance and how to save. They know, for example, what are the prices of stocks. It's easier for them to see like Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies uh, as an investment vehicle. And, and they have like a, a framework to think about that, that, that is lacking in, in emerging markets because of a lot of lack of not only access and the tools, but also like the knowledge to use that. But I think like with time, this is starting to change. And I think like in the last year and this year, we're, we're starting to see a lot of that. And also with the pandemic, this, this has accelerated a lot, a lot this. You just mentioned as an investment opportunity, and, and, and I think it's, it's getting me to think a little bit about something I've wanted to explore with you guys, and that is how important it is or isn't to think about local on-the-ground needs and to treat the solutions you're providing depending on what the actual mindsets, needs, cultural, whatever differences are from place to place. And, I, and it strikes me that one of the core Bitcoin propositions, which is not so much the payment solution, the rails for payments, but rather the one that we've also seen play out in the developed world of it as an investment opportunity, as you just mentioned, uh, Sebastian, and therefore as a store of value, something that can give me something to hold on to as an alternative to the potential debasement and loss of value of my other income, is possibly more powerful in, in Latin America. And I want to see if that's correct. I mean, certainly the Argentine experience, the Brazil. So, so do you feel as if that appeal of Bitcoin is especially interesting for a Latin American perspective? 
for our user base, especially in Argentina, that's the case. Like our average user, the main use case is just to buy and hold. It's not even a speculation. It's just having a way to protect their wealth. And there are not that, that many ways to do it. Like right now in, in Argentina, like the government has a, a restriction of access to dollars again. You're not allowed to buy more than $200 per month at the official exchange rate. And then this has become a very good way to get a, an asset that you can protect your wealth. And to give a sense of, of how much we have grown lately, it's like at the beginning of the year, we were about 400K uh, users registered. We are now at 600K. We think we're going to end up the year at doubling our user base from the beginning of the year. We have been exploding on user acquisition. We have also been seeing a lot more usage from our users. So they are using it even more. And from December, we on Bitcoin, we have like almost 10 times more volume. And in one new category, and I think this is also starting to change a lot, the face of, uh, of the space is the, the development of stable coins. From the last year, from not having any volume or minimal, now we're doing like 20 times more. And also an easier way to conceptualize it and under, understand it. And so we see more users that at the beginning start using our, our service just to buy and sell stable coins. And then starting to use the rest of the tools and the, and everything is starting to build around from access to, to Bitcoin or Ethereum and, and even DeFi and, and all that is, is happening. So I want to get into a whole lot of stuff that you were mentioning there a little bit on, which is sort of why now? What is it about this moment that's driving it? And secondly, this stablecoin interconnectivity and interoperability question, I think, is a key point, potentially, at least, of the infrastructure. But before we do that, Elizabeth, I'd just like to get your thoughts on the point I raised before about sort of differentiation about needs. Sebastian, confirm my suspicions that there's a certain Latin American interest in the store of value proposition for Bitcoin as an alternative to a history of currency debasement. Does that exist in Africa or is it a, it is a very different, you know, I'm, I'm asking you to put your Bitcoin hat on here. You know, rather than just say the whole continent, let's break it down. Where there are dollar restrictions, where there are monetary policy, wild volatility, you know, where it's what we call an inefficient monetary policy, where there are double exchange rates, for sure, people don't want to store their capital in their home currency. That's for sure. Whether they want to store it in a digital currency or not, mm, not always. I think hard currencies are still desired. Specifically in Bitcoin, I see people using it to get to those hard currencies as opposed to just hold it. Now, that's clearly you know making a big assumption there. But I've had investors call me nonstop all year long saying, I hear Nigeria is exploding for Bitcoin you know, because the Google searches is up. But what we're seeing a lot is two things. We're seeing really annoying pyramid schemes still cover the continent. And a lot of Google searching is for these annoying pyramid schemes that target the base of the pyramid. And a lot of those people are in jail or were in jail or you know thinking about going to jail. So that's annoying. And a lot of the Google search and a lot of the retail searching across the continent has really hit the continent hard. And a lot of the early regulation and, and the, the reluctance to regulate fairly was based on these stupid things. And they were even named. So that's annoying. On the higher end, I would say that young Africans, and I will say this for the whole continent, are just like young people everywhere in the world. 
and they're interested in speculating, they're interested in investing, they're interested in playing around, they're interested in alternatives. So, you know, I spoke at a Bloomberg event in London and they were like, aren't people just using Bitcoin for speculation? And I was like, well, <laughs> you guys make your damn money. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All of you, what did you do today? You speculate. <laughs> you know? so I, oh, come I, on. I, yeah. I, I, I think it's so <laughs> hilarious that, you know, people in quote unquote high finance who are doing ridiculous things all the time. You know, I used to work in investment banking with hedge funds. <laughs> There's no gambling on Wall Street. Glass houses. Speculation is, is not a bad word. It's what every investor does. It's risk management in, in a yeah, kind of exactly. collective way. Yeah. You know, I actually want to pick up a little bit on, on your regulation point because um, we, we've talked quite a bit, you and I, just about how impactful, frankly, you know, BitPesa, the existence of BitPesa was in terms of how Kenya specifically was thinking about regulation. But I'm curious, you know, if you see more openness We'll speak to Africa specifically and to East Africa even more specifically, but if you're kind of seeing more openness to this after the early days, and maybe just quickly walk through the history of, yeah, of what happened there. So like in in the early days, you know, I was going around beating beating a pot and pan about this and visiting regulators and they were like, who the heck is this girl? What is she talking about? You know, then the price went up and the, the pyramid schemes came in. And all of a sudden, instead of it going to the Financial Conduct Authority or the Capital Markets Authority, the central bank, it went to the cybercrime unit. So all of a sudden, several governments across the continent, Kenya included, suddenly had digital currency at the cybercrime unit and were freaking out about it. And they clamped down hard and said, we ban it. So before anything was even known, they kind of banned it. And they named like OneCoin and they named BitClub and things like this on those lists. So that was annoying. At the same time in South Africa, where you have a heavy, kind of very independent thinking financial culture, you had this go straight to the South African Reserve Bank instead of the Financial Crimes Unit. And they put out a very thoughtful, in-depth piece in March 2014, and then again in 2015. So that was like the first step in the other direction of like, we're going to consider this something legitimate, and we're going to look at it in a measured approach. And today, it's still one of the clearest pieces of like legislation. And then everywhere else in the continent, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know whether to go the Kenyan route or the South African route until Uganda really made progress a year ago. And then finally, Nigeria this year came out with a cryptocurrency regulation. And that's what the title is, not digital or not anything else. And that went under the Securities and Exchange Commission, which was interesting. It was like a four or five year pause where nobody made any regulation. And of course, you heard things in the news like, you know, Tunisia, everybody using Bitcoin or Egypt, people love crypto. And there was a lot of media, you know, suddenly Liberia is using it. But usually it would be like one college student (laughs) did a thesis project and then the media picked up on it. So there was really not a lot of substance to any of that talk about legislation for years and years and years. And I'd say, you know, Mauritius now has a bit, South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, And everywhere else, it's still not clear. They haven't really published. I do think that the fact that the Nigerian regulation did go to the SEC was cool because it showed that around the world, we're not going to the same regulators. You know, sometimes it's central bank, sometimes it's capital markets, sometimes it's Security and Exchange Commission. And, you know, those things exist even in in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I love the idea that it's like these nuanced regulation can also develop there at the same pace as elsewhere in the world. Well, I actually think the innovation and regulation, and we've really seen it in parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Caribbean, in Latin America. And so, Sebastian, I'll I'll kind of pass the same question over to you. You know, 
kind of what's the history of what we saw in the regulatory landscape across uh, South America and Central America? And did you see that there were certain this opposition between South Africa and Kenya, for example, in these two kind of polar positions and everyone else was trying to kind of fill in the spectrum? Is that what happened in Latin America or did we have a different progression in history there? We do have a different history and, and progression. So far, at least in the, the largest countries, there is a lot of lack of regulation or the only country that has a, a forbidden regulation is Bolivia. The other country that has some restrictions is Ecuador on payments. Bolivia has a, a complete ban, but the rest of the region, the two regulators that care the most are uh, what is called AFIP in Argentina, which is the regulator that does taxes like the IRS in the US, and the Receta in Brazil. And they, they saw money and they quickly regulated <laughs> into how to charge uh, taxes from it. But then the rest of regulators don't have so much written or regulated. And this year started to see more thinking and interest from regulators into see how to, to regulate it. But, but so far, the landscape for regulation is still very open, which is good and bad. It's good because it allows for more innovation. But at the same time, it also makes you a lot more uh, harder to work with the existing financial infrastructure that sees you as an unregulated industry and they try to avoid touching things that are not regulated when they are regulated. That does hurt a bit, but that's kind of like the landscape today, especially in South America. There is another exception, which is Mexico. Mexico does have a law for fintechs that mentions uh, cryptocurrencies. And, and if you want to have service in Mexico, you need to get regulated and need to get a, a fintech license. That's about it. And there is not too much more. It's really interesting how it, different jurisdictions around the world are really focused on either creating really clear regulations. I think South Africa is a great example of this. We had the premier of Bermuda on a couple episodes ago talking about how they're really trying to export their regulatory framework as something that can be a model for others and attract uh, investment into, into Bermuda. Um, and, but I also think that there are some that saw clarity in exactly the opposite way through just outright bans. We saw that happen in you know, Korea early on and Kenya and other places. And then there was this kind of middle path of the regulatory sandbox, which was kind of this like, we'll work together with the startups and with the industry to kind of see what happens and emerges. And Elizabeth, you know, you shaped my thinking actually on regulatory sandboxes as a method of agile governance really early on, a couple of years ago when we had this conversation, when you were like, well, how do I build a business in a constantly shifting landscape? And so I'm curious how you both are seeing regulatory sandboxes. First, maybe one of you can define for us a regulatory sandbox. And then thinking through you know, how that's affected the development of the ecosystem really globally. And if you feel like there's still an appeal to regulatory sandboxes, if you feel like there's a lot of people are migrating to jurisdictions where that's a possibility, or if you think that more people are taking the standpoint that they really want regulatory certainty and they want to kind of build in an environment where they know what they're getting. Well, you know, I've been a sandbox hater from day one. <laughs> yep. A purgatory. I won't name the jurisdiction, but I'm in a purgatory right now. When when I said that story about going to the UK, we purposely did not go into the sandbox. We went for the full license and those guys stayed in the sandbox forever. How the heck do you tell a client, I can only really transact with you up to this amount and then you're going to have to wait one to two years until I get a license. It's not practical. If you're building a real business and you want to grow at a real business pace, you need clarity. And a sandbox 
usually gives you, you know, kid child status. And the second thing is a sandbox does not guarantee a bank account. And no matter how much we want to hate on the banking sector, a lot of companies that do on and off ramps do need accounts, do need bank accounts. And so a lot of the sandboxes, specifically the one in the UK, became famous for being a place where you would go and get stamped with a, this is now unbankable. (laughs) So instead of attracting banks to the sandbox, it was, you know, a stamp of to stay away. And that happened in the Middle East as well in some of the sandboxes there. And we've spoken to the regulators about that. And they say, you know, we can't force the banks to bank you. But huddling all the scary fintechs that are not yet regulated and clarity together doesn't help either. So, you know, getting a license isn't the end all. It's the license plus the bank relationship that really gets you off the ground. And we still see today some of the largest fintechs in Europe have very tenuous relationships with their main bank. It helped them grow. It leads to their success. But at any second, the bank can kick them off and kill them. And unless you're Monzo or, you know, or Revolut, and even them, you really don't have that power. So we still, as fintechs, and I would consider a lot of the digital currency companies fintechs, we live and die by the bank. And certainly if the sandbox doesn't help you get there, then what the heck's the point? I agree a little bit with Elizabeth, especially on businesses like us, uh, like that we do kind of like an interface where gateways or on-ramp of off-ramps. Especially if you're in a cryptocurrency business, you, you touch both both worlds. And sandboxes can be very risky for the type of business that we do. But I do think like maybe there is a, a use case for sandboxes, especially for the type of businesses that are starting to appear in the space that do not require banking. Like, for example, I think like for DeFi projects that right now they ask themselves, I'm a security. I'm not a security. What should be this treated? And I think for these projects that are completely open source, that, that don't need the banking relationships and, and be interacting with other regulated entities, I think there could be a place for have sandboxes and let them innovate without being at the risk of like, are we doing something that's going to be considered illegal in this jurisdiction? But I'm not entirely sure either. No, yeah, I agree with that for sure. That's definitely a a use case. Sheila talked about like, you know, a middle way. There's also the kind of out of left field crazy way that governments, (laughs) that governments can participate in this. And if you look at what Venezuela is doing, I think it's kind of interesting, right? So many options of how to, yes. (laughs) Their own petrocoin as a way to like totally, you know, bypass sanctions and create an entirely different solution to their mounting debt crisis. And now they're actually enabling crypto exchanges, understand, or at least cryptocurrency itself, understanding that the public need it, but having one single government-sanctioned exchange where everything else is illegal. So all of these big questions about, you know, how, are we really solving the trusted third-party problem and the kind of bizarro alternative to that come out in Venezuela? I just wanted to point that out. But you've mentioned, Sebastian, the stablecoin role, and you also mentioned DeFi, which I think are the two, two of the big stories, at least in the blockchain space of the past year. I'd like to dig a little bit more deeper into what role they're playing in this enabling of adoption in, in the developing world. And one of the things that's interesting about stablecoins, of course, is that they speak to one of the problems that people often refer to as being the barrier for Bitcoin as a remittance vehicle or anything else, and that is simply the volatility of its price relative to whatever the national currency was. 
Is that now? Are we now seeing these stablecoins resolving that? Are they on ramps into Bitcoin? Are they literally being used as direct payment vehicles? Are they remittances? How big is the trend? The trend is, at least in Latin America, is, is very big and it's growing exponentially. And something that is interesting about the stablecoins is that the rate of adoption of stablecoins does not correlate with the price of, uh, of Bitcoin. And I think this is a very interesting, still early, with Bitcoin, you see that there is a price correlation to adoption and to searches and it, it fits itself, but it's very correlated to the price. With the stable coins, that does not happen. It's, it's in a more stable grow and very, very strong. And in South America, especially, well, Argentina, which is our main country, Argentinians have a history of saving in dollars for decades and decades. Every time there is trouble, like if you save in dollars, you're going to be in a better position and people have historically saved in physical dollars in their mattresses because sometimes the governments have even like make it illegal to hold them into bank accounts and convert it into really bad exchange rates. That created a culture into saving in dollars. And a stable coins is something that is easier to understand. And, and today in Argentina, big percent of the population know about DAI. DAI has become a very known stable coin. And, and also second USDC. And we see a lot of users starting to buy and save in, into stable coins. You see a lot more uh, press coverage. And then also like before you ask what, what changes, but we're in a point that even like newspapers inform the price of Bitcoin and, and stable coins in their covers. So it's becoming more and more mainstream. Uh, and regarding to payments, we're seeing a lot more freelancers and people that, that is working online to start getting paid in stable coins as a way of charging clients abroad is early, but it's starting to happen. Not yet so much on remittances. For example, to Venezuela, we have a ton of users, like 40,000 uh, users that are immigrants from Venezuela and Argentina that are buying crypto to sell money back to their homes. And it's one of the only ways that they can do it. But they still use Bitcoin. And they still use Bitcoin because the main tool to be able to sell crypto in Venezuela is still local Bitcoins. And local Bitcoins only support Bitcoin. There are very strong network effects. Like, as you mentioned, like in Venezuela, to sell Bitcoin, you had to do it peer to peer. And there is a strong network effect into the use of local Bitcoins. As RTM grows in, in Venezuela, I think there, there will be more use of stable coins. But still, we see a lot of remittances done in Bitcoin just because local Bitcoins. In Venezuela, for example, is what is support. <laughs> that, that's fascinating. It, it speaks to the point we were making before about the differentiation from place to place and the history of it, right? It, it's almost as if Bitcoin is actually the traditional solution in Venezuela, of course, because Venezuela is almost at ground zero in having to rebuild its entire financial system. And so at that beginning point, Bitcoin is like the tradition. You know, it's, it's really interesting the way we can think about that. You know, Elizabeth, I just, we've only got time for one more question. Like, I think just to throw this one to you at the end here. And I want to get back to the point that you made about this lack of an infrastructure on a global scale and having to build all these kind of like peer-to-peer -peer solutions that end up like not really needing Bitcoin. I'm just wondering whether you think maybe, right, stable coins and some of the 
decentralized exchange solutions that are coming out of the DeFi world that potentially extract us from those traditional financial structures. So of course, there's a back-end regulatory framework, but it, it does feel as if now we can actually move money more freely around in a stable form, which can then allow for on and off ramps into or out of crypto if you, if you so want. Do you see this as feeding into that bigger question of infrastructure, or are we still going to see this piecemeal challenge as a result of the regulatory patchwork that you talked about? Well, here's a thought. Let's not move money around anymore. <laughs> so, hmm, interesting. You know, Go, I mean, run with that. <laughs> mail currencies are ridiculous. You know, we shouldn't be moving the U.S. dollar between African nations and Asia and Southeast Asia and South America. Like, we shouldn't be doing that. Middle currencies are so silly. We should have more liquidity, more competition, more information to have the ability to make a market between every currency everywhere at all times, digital mm. fiat, whatever. I mean, you look, look what TransferWise was able to do. Look what my little tiny company is. I mean, we're, we're 20 million revenue this year. We do a billion dollars of transactions this year, but that's nothing. That's nothing. We're, we're tiny and we're able to make a market. Information competition has been blocked, you know, not to get political. We should have more people making a market. You look into Switzerland where I used to work in Zurich, this tiny little city is full of market makers for the Swiss franc. It is very liquid. So we've seen with Bitcoin, as it gets more liquid, slippage reduces, costs reduce, competition comes in, and it becomes easy to get in or out. You don't necessarily need these counterparties. So I get calls all the time from people around the industry saying, hey, why don't you use my stablecoin as an intermediary? Why don't you use my, my new cryptocurrency as an intermediary? And I say, I don't need it anymore. Basically, I'm going into you and then out of you for why? You know, like we don't need that anymore. So all we need to do is just make sure we have a buyer and seller on each side, the end. And it is like local Bitcoins. And I think that's the solution. And it keeps everything local. We reduce this dependency on third-party currencies, which reduces a lot of the like monetary policy colonization in a lot of these places. So again, you know, I've had a lot of really big crypto companies come to me and try to force me to use their currency as a middle currency, but you know, we're not going to just trade out our masters for another one. I think it's really, really important to build out liquidity everywhere. And, and it's a very simple thing to do if you just lower down the barrier entry. I couldn't agree with you more, Elizabeth. I think this is, it's such a powerful point that if we are really using particularly specific backed currencies as intermediary currencies, then what we're really doing is just reinforcing the existing systems rather than really opening up what the promise of peer-to-peer -peer is. It's not just peer-to-peer -peer individual user to individual user. It's also coin-to-coin -coin and currency-to-currency. -currency. So I think it's a really powerful point. As so often happens in these conversations, we end up on a point where I know that I could just explode this into a whole bigger conversation because once Elizabeth started going down that path, I was like, there we go. Now we're talking about this interoperability of digital assets that lie across the world and why do we even need the dollar as a reserve currency anyway which of course opens a whole can of worms of conversation about geopolitics of the future of the world many of which are the kinds of topics that we will be talking about and have talked about continue to talk about with money reimagined so thank you so much to elizabeth rossiello and sebastian serrano and of course to you sheila as always for helping to set up what i think was a, a fascinating discussion that's so much food for thought here looking forward to catching up with you guys again sometime soon so thank you all thank uh, you, we'll both. Thank you. Thanks so much
You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Elizabeth Rossiello, and Sebastian Serrano. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced, edited, and announced by Adam B. Levine. Thank you very much for listening. And just a heads up, we're taking a break next week for the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday. We'll be back in December. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. 